The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun. I am, as always, your host, Dr. Brian Carr. Uh, what a really exciting time uh, for popular culture in general, but uh, really exciting for this show personally because we got the chance to go back to, honestly, one of my favorite events in the area, maybe ever, Brown County Library Comic Con. This is something that the Brown County Library does every year. It's a really fun event. It's open to all ages, open to the public. They get artists, they get writers, they get local comic shop. This year they had a band called The Shake Ups, a Scooby-Doo themed band. Uh, and uh, we, uh, and I say we, kind of the royal sense, myself at Serious Fun, uh, had the chance to be a part of that. This is the third year now we have done a podcast at Brown County Library Comic Con, and they're always very generous with their time and helping us secure guests. And so the next few episodes of Serious Fun are all recorded live at the Brown County Library Comic Con. So uh, that's a really exciting thing, and we got some great guests. So first off, this is a discussion, an interview I had with the comic artist, the Eisner Award-winning comic artist and writer Gene Ha. Gene Ha, is, uh, he's a fantastic guy. I love talking to him. And uh, you're going to hear that right now, live from the Brown County Library Comic Con, here on Serious Fun. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun, coming to you live once again from the 2019 Brown County Library Comic Con. And yes, it's okay to clap, make some noise for Comic Con. Woo! I am your host and the world's okayest detective, Brian Carr. Serious Fun is a look at popular culture from the perspectives of the fans, academics, and professionals, that's who we're gonna be talking to today, uh, that make pop culture what it is. My guest today is a veteran of the comics industry, a four-time Eisner-winning artist who has worked on series like X-Men and Justice League for, uh, for DC and Marvel Comics, and collaborated with creators like Alan Moore on series like Top 10 and the 49ers, for which he won three of those aforementioned Eisners. His current project is the fantasy series May, about a young woman who, whose missing sister returns after eight years, claiming she found a world of monsters that happened to follow her home. You know, that old story. Let's give a big serious fun slash Brown County Library Comic Con welcome to Gene Ha. Good morning, Green Bay. Yeah. Gene, thank you for being on the show. How, how are you enjoying Green Bay so far? I know you're from around Chicago, so that's always like uh, weird. Ah, uh, it's, uh, oh, um, no, uh, I'm, Hopefully no one in Chicago will notice me saying this, but I've always admired the fact that Green Bay actually owns their team and they can't threaten to leave. And it's just, I, I assume from the fact that you guys are a serious football challenge to Chicago, mm -hmm. that this town would be much more gigantic, but this is like almost like a caricature of like where you would want to live in Wisconsin. Of right. just like, 
you got like supper clubs yeah. and just all these great eateries and it's just cute and adorable. Yeah, and it's you just you like, drive out east, you go look at the leaves, right? Yeah, I like, thought there'd be like skyscrapers and stuff though. No, no, this, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> this is just like this super livable town. Yeah, it's, it's weird because people are always like, oh, this is such a small town. It's like, okay, so I grew up in a town that was like, I don't know, like how many people? Like a hundred? Something like that? 300, okay. And uh, our graduating class was about 100. 97. 97. Okay, my, my wife paying is, is fact-checking me in real time, which is, <laughs> which is great. Um, so, yeah, like coming here, it's like this is a bustling metropolis by comparison. It's Oh, man. Um, it's, yeah, I, I know, right? Yeah. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. Okay. Uh, probably about the same size as Green Bay. But, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's, South Bend's famous now because of uh, Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, this place is um, not run down. No. And South Bend is, it's been beat. It's been beat down a little bit. Yeah, it, you know, we're, we're hoping it'll come back. It's yeah. always nice. You always, you always root for everybody. It is coming back, but yeah, yeah it's not when I was living there. Right. <laughs> well, you're here now. Yeah. And so uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about over the next uh, hour or so. Um, so let's get started. You mentioned, of course, that you grew up in South Bend, but let's, let's kind of get the whole Gene Ha story. Um, what kind of got you where you are today? What got you interested in comics? How'd you get started? Uh, that kind of thing. Oh, man. Uh, I grew up in the 70s during the uh, spinner rack drugstore era when you would buy comic books. Uh, but what really got me into like understanding comics is an art that's beyond just superhero books mm -hmm. uh, was the fact that the South Bend Public Library, uh, St. Joseph County Public Library in Indiana, um, stocked comic books way before most public libraries did. Oh. So they had like uh, Asterix books from France, uh, reprints of old uh, DC and Marvel comic books all over the place. And I just got this huge overview of what the comic book industry was mm -hmm. way before that was normally possible for kids in the 70s. So. Interesting. And so, again, like, you know, the, the sort of uh, trend toward library stocking comics has been, you know, kind of a trend we've seen a lot in the libraries. I'm looking over at Andrea. She's nodding. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that is really forward thinking. It's kind of interesting. Back in the 70s, there was a library thinking that far ahead. Oh, yeah. It made a huge difference in my life. They also had a lot of great uh, books on illustration and um, the history of American illustration, which was really hard to find books like that back then. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I just, uh, oh, God, it was just the best art collection, oh, just the best public library art collection I'd seen ever uh, up until recently, where it's just like more libraries are doing that now. But mm -hmm. in the 70s, they were just way ahead of their time. So that, so you went to the library, you checked out the comics, the books on illustration, and then uh, you started drawing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it just gave me a, it raised my standard a bit. Um, and I've met people who are annoyingly talented since mm -hmm. who grew up in the same era. But um, uh, I would have gone halfway as far as I did if I hadn't had those books. And those guys did without those books. And natural, yeah. it's not natural talent that got me where I am. It's the library. Right. And, and of course, the practice and, and studying oh, the, yeah. the great masters and, and folks who have worked on this. Yeah. Stuff. But I'll say one problem that a lot of people have, uh, if, if they don't have access to a library like this, is they keep on, and this, this is something I ran into myself, they take someone who's like um, good at cartooning, but if you're trying to do realistic illustration, you're basing it on a cartoony drawing, right? you're going to get a lot of weird stuff entering your drawings mm -hmm. that you have to unlearn later. Uh, I love John Byrne, but he is not the person to learn uh, how to draw a, fa a realistic face from odd angles at. No. Uh, and it, that's part of what I did in art school, is just unlearning John Byrne. As right. much as I love him, that's... But yeah. you got to give him credit. He could draw a good mullet. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so you, went, you said you went to art school. So where did you go to art school? Uh, I went to uh, Detroit's uh, uh, 
College for Creative Studies, mm -hmm. uh, which had a really good uh, illustration program back then, and at the time it had the world's top car design program. Okay. And just being able to hang out with the car my car design friends meant I learned how to draw uh, machinery, cars, reflections, um, a lot of stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, that I wouldn't have learned easily just on my own inside the illustration program. Interesting. So, uh, and, and so, what do so you think that contributed to your overall just kind of style as well? Oh yeah. Um, the fact that if you look at how I draw, say, um, a person with a metallic shiny armor or mm -hmm. even metallic shiny skin, it's very different than most people do it because it's informed by how actual reflections work on cars, mm -hmm. uh, and that even affects how I just do a like say a shiny dark uniform. Like if I'm doing Batman's mask and I want to make it look super slick, uh, the way I do it is influenced by my pals who did car design. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I would, I, I, you get the influence from just kind of the oddest places. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, you, go to, you go to the art school in Detroit. Um, of course, great place to learn about how to draw cars and machines and that kind of thing. Um, so what gets you into the industry? Like, what's the step between art school and winning the Eisners and whatnot? Oh, uh, the next big thing was, um, okay, I should mention that when I was in South Bend, I went to my first little tiny Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the only one I went to before uh, I went to art school. And they brought in two artists, real comic book artists, which for, some, for South Bend was just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd never heard of them before, but it was still exciting to go to a panel like this uh, outside Notre Dame in a rented space. And all the kids were asking questions. And one of the kids asked, uh, are you rich? <laughs> and then both artists began laughing in a way that for middle school me just scared me. of just like, <laughs> they began pointing their jeans saying, you think we're rich? Oh, my God. <laughs> and just like. I mean, I didn't want, I it didn't necessarily, and I still don't necessarily want to become, my focus in life is not to become rich, rich. Right. But it's not to be in poverty either. Sure. And those guys just scared me. They're right. Like, so I thought it was not possible to make a living in comics. Right. And then what happened is that uh, when I went to art school, um, I didn't have a car at the time. And then a local comic book shop from the suburbs set up a comic book selling stand at a uh, the hip used clothing store near my school. Mm -hmm. And I was able to ask that guy, um, uh, Hassan from uh, the now long gone Comics Cafe, mm -hmm. uh, about where the comic book industry was now. And he's like, oh, it's going through a boom, boom period. This is around the time when uh, people like uh, Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and stuff like that were all uh, breaking away from Marvel Comics to form Image Comics. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, oh, you can actually make a living in comics now? It's like, yes, you can definitely make a living in comics. And he's the guy who convinced me to actually try out for comics. Back when you could actually just mail a pile of uh, 10 sample pages of narrative, you know, 10 sequential pages of a sample comic book uh, story and mail it to Marvel and DC. And both of them would automatically write you back a letter either saying you have a job or you don't have a job with mm -hmm. us. Interesting. And, of course, that's not how it works now. Oh, no, no, no. no. Okay, so, so you kind of got in at, uh, at a very specific time in the industry. Yeah, boom um, time and when they would actually answer your, less, your uh, sample letters. Okay, and also much less corporatized time, arguably, too. Yeah, they, uh, it was Marvel and DC Comics were starting to become actual professional operations. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, uh, the, the whole uh, Stan Soapbox thing of we're just a bunch of goofy guys hanging out in an office mm -hmm. together is kind of true. Mm -hmm. uh, from that time period, uh, there were things where, like, they would just suddenly reprint an old comic with a new cover because they'd forgotten to actually finish it mm -hmm. one month. Um, but yeah, I was. This is when I was starting to become professional, starting to get a lot bigger, and yeah, it was just the perfect time to get in. Okay, uh, so what are some of the first books you work on? 
Uh... Green Lantern 36 was the first one for DC. Um, okay. I should mention, I sent in samples to Marvel, and then as my uh, backup plan, I sent them also to DC. Mm-hmm. And Marvel sent me a letter, a form letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, oh, and I actually have it on a jump drive in my pocket. Okay. Yeah, you can actually, I don't know if you have a computer. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't right now, but we'll have, we can okay. maybe put it up later. But um. Yeah, um, but it was a checklist of everything you could do wrong with your samples. Yeah. Like a list of about nine different items. And they checked off all of them, but storytelling. So like mm-hmm. anatomy, perspective, uh, just everything. They said it's just screwed up. And then they wrote extra notes on the bottom because they hadn't thought of the other mistakes I made. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was, uh, I considered myself a hotshot illustration student in his senior year at the Center for Creative Studies. So I just kind of, except for basic biological survival, I just kind of laid on my couch for three days. Mm-hmm. Until then the DC letter came and they said, uh, paraphrasing, you don't have a job with DC either, but we'd like to see more samples. Oh, okay. And that's eventually uh, working with Neil Posner, uh, me sending in more samples, and him giving me feedback, either over the phone or in a letter, mm-hmm. is what got me good enough so that I could actually work for DC and do Green Lantern 36. Okay. Uh, okay, so then after that, uh, story, uh, your story kind of takes off, right? So you're doing work for DC, you later, of course, do work for Marvel and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and so what are some of the stuff you're proudest of in this particular era? Oh, um, oh man. Uh, I, uh, I, one of the first things I did for, other than uh, um, an X-Men annual story, one of the first things I did was uh, for Marvel was Cyclops and Phoenix. Right. Um, and that's where I got an inker I really loved, uh, um, Andrew Peepoy, uh, he was doing, and then, uh, oh, Alve. So two inkers who worked really well on my stuff. And I was able to just kind of bust out and do science fiction backgrounds in a way that looked distinctive from anything that had come before inside of American superhero comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just really, it gave, it was, uh, Cyclops and Phoenix is the two famous X-Men characters transported over a thousand years into the future. Mm-hmm. And this had been, the setting had been drawn before, but everyone, all the previous artists had tried to make it look like Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Because we know a thousand years from now, everything's going to look like Blade Runner, which looks like 1940s Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kind of ran with it and just said, no, everything's going to look weird and different. And if you have floating technology that's completely reliable a thousand years before, by now, components of buildings are going to be floating around. And just all this technology is going to be integrated in society. So mm-hmm. everything looked different. And just, uh, yeah, people were just, uh, I've just, People still come up to me today saying, like, how that was, I, I succeeded at what I was trying to do, was just trying to show a future that looked completely alien to what we live in today. Okay. And so, that, and so that's kind of the fun thing about that point is you're just like, okay, what could I do differently or what uh, could I create that just we haven't seen before? Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's that joy of when you get to, um, you, you get, when you're trying to world build and you're trying to create a setting where it has enough it has enough reference points so people can understand what the story is you're telling. Mm-hmm. It's not about uh, you know sentient uh, plant roots uh, trying to form a society together. It'd be oh, a hard yeah. comic yeah. story. Why, why would you do that story? Yeah. I mean, I, I could probably figure out how to write it and how the society would work, but it'd be a boring story. I'm sorry. Right. Or at least for me, it would be. Yeah, okay. So, um, so you're working for DC and Marvel, and uh, 
one of the things that I, I like to ask when I talk to folks who are creatives um, is I like to kind of give a feel for like what your influences were. And so the way I kind of pitched it to you before we sat down, ah. and you've got the list, so you, you good, <laughs> is, uh, you know, I think in terms of syllabi, I'm a professor, right? And so yeah. I think who are the people that are, you know, not necessarily canonical, but people I think would be really interesting or relevant for the students to discuss. And so I asked you, like, if you could assign four artists to a prospective student of illustration and design and comics art, what would you assign? Like, who are the people that you think are pivotal in kind of your formation and could also, others could learn a lot from? Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, some people I really, really admire who I think, um, if you want to understand where comics has come from and where it's going in the future, I'm going to start off with uh, the more superhero focused and then go into the wider world of graphic novel literature today. Uh, so the first one I'm going to do is possibly the best American comic book artist uh, born anywhere near my generation or later, Darwin Cook, the late Darwin Cook. Yes. I was looking over your shoulder, so I'm like, oh, yes, yes, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And if you want to understand uh, the American superhero aesthetic of kind of these bold, uh, bold lines, bold shadows, bold graphics, great storytelling, and just beautifully designed pages, Darwin Cook is the man. Uh, also, uh, if you're old enough to read uh, Murderous Noir, uh, his uh, Parker series, are some of the best comic books that have ever come out of the United States. Yeah, yeah. what I love about his work is that it's very cartoony, but also has this kind of, it, it's almost, it's realistic in a way too. Like everything feels plausible, even if the design is kind of, it, it's, it's heavily stylized. Yeah, uh, yeah. and he worked in animation for a while, so he has a combination of both appreciation for comics and for the American animation styles. He did a, a lot of the animated Batman TV show stuff, mm -hmm. uh, but he took that style and pushed it into this, like, the perfect artistic ideal of that style mm -hmm. and then kept on going. Um, and he did it for a lot of uh, things like uh, the Silver Age, a lot of things for, like, DC Comics and stuff. His, it, he just does the perfect drawings of old comic book designs. But then on his Parker series, it's a realistic uh, 19, early 1960s crime drama. Mm -hmm. And it looks just like what you wish every noir movie looked like back then. It's, it's, it's just unimaginably perfect that way. Okay, so who else you got on your list? Okay, next superhero guy, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, and uh, when I was growing up, uh, I had a lot of influence. Like I mentioned, of course, uh, John Byrne and uh, Matt Wagner was a huge influence on me. But the guy who is still an ongoing influence for me today, where I'm just starting now to integrate some of the stuff I most admired when I was a kid, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz is just a genius. He took... Uh, he doesn't draw on a standard gloss, sm super smooth lined uh, ink style. It's very, he, he's the first guy I know of in American comics who did a beautiful scratchy style like that. And he's a guy who also in real life will just like say sit in a train station and just sketch people mm -hmm. and just capture their essence very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and he took that aesthetic, that sketchy aesthetic and took into comics while still just being one of the best represent realistic representational artists I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, he also then pushed that into paint, uh, took the best of American illustration that I'd read about from the South Bend Public Library, mm -hmm. uh, added that to comics. Uh, his Electro Assassin's just a masterpiece. Um, and if you look at his modern work, he's also famous now for his, uh, he'll do a portrait uh, after a celebrity he loves uh, passes away, he'll do a portrait of them. And if you just l 
track down his portraits online, yeah. they're just pure genius. Um, he's also one of the most moral and clever and smart people I've ever met, mm -hmm. now that I met him in person. And just he's just a joy to talk to if you ever get to. He's so thoughtful and yeah. so nice. He and seems so smart. like such a nice dude. He is. He like just, I, I only follow his Twitter, but like he's just like I always liked his oh, Bill posted something and it's lovely. Yeah. Right. He's also a guy where like you can just give him the crappiest tools and he'll create a masterpiece in front of you while chatting. And he's just mm -hmm. one of those guys who can chat and draw and just do it all. And it's just so natural to him because he's practiced so well yeah. and he's been so talented. So what was your first exposure to Bill Sinkevich? Oh, um, there's a few exposures, but the one that really struck me was when he took over New Mutants, which was a fine book when it started off, but a very standard X-Men drawn book, mm -hmm. and just drawn in a totally standard style, and all the characters looked like your ideal superhero characters made skinnier and younger. Mm -hmm. And then he took these characters, and just when he took over, all of them looked like real people I could meet inside of my high school. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be teenage super mutant superheroes. And it just blew my mind how they became individuals in his hand and how he had his emotions weren't cartoony emotions were like uh you know like the crescent moon smile and stuff like that mm -hmm. and real people in general very few people have actual crescent moon smiles uh what happens in a smile is that the corners of your mouth upturn no matter what shape your mouth some people have upside down smiles the crescent moon goes upside down mm -hmm. but you can still tell they're smiling because the corners of the mouth turn up it's a smile that's a secret for that and he's the first person I ever saw in a comic book who actually did realistic facial expressions. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot. Just like, what the hell is he doing? I can tell what the emotion is, but he didn't draw it right. And just, my head blew up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish I could say that was my first exposure to Bill Sienkiewicz, but I'm pretty sure it was the art he did for the Venture Brothers season one DVD. <laughs> oh, that's but it's, great. A, it's a great drawing of Brock Samson. Oh, yeah. yeah he, when he takes, he draws yeah. someone else's character like that. It transforms how you see that character. Right. Um, so who else you got? Oh, okay. Uh, next one. Uh, I'm going to mention Katie Cook, who has gone through a large transition. She, uh, she's famous for doing Star Wars uh, children's books. Mm -hmm. uh, she's currently doing Nothing Special online, Webtoon online for free, uh, finishing up its second volume. Uh, and also uh, writes My Little Pony and just... Um, she represents for me like this, just this modern flowering of like... Uh, Someone who starts off as an indie webcomic artist, mm -hmm. online artist, and then just kind of goes on. Everything about her career and what she's doing with her style will teach you the limits of what you can do in comics now. And just, she's now doing, uh, so she's doing a, a free webcomic, which maybe someday it'll see print. But if you look at how the pages are designed, I, it theoretically be printed, but she'll just have these giant panels that are like, it would be like five pants. Five pages of comics stacked one on top of another, mm -hmm. forming one giant panel, and just of storytelling. And she's pushing the boundaries of what can be done in comics in a really interesting way. Hmm. Um, the writing's brilliant, but it's also super, super long form. It's like uh, she's taking Japanese influences, not just in style tweaks, but also in writing and integrating with the best of American comics writing. And just everything she's doing is really clever. Okay. Um, and so you have one other name on there that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so um, hopefully all of you know that the biggest, most successful, most in, uh, in, in many ways, the most important uh, comic book creator uh, living today is um, uh, Raina Telgemeier. Okay. So an obvious person to cite, but I'm going to cite the person who inspired her work. So follow Raina, but also follow Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse. Uh, and if you want to see where her uh, 
cartoon uh, style tweaks, uh, ticks came from, and uh, also her inspiration to do real life semi autobiographical comics came from. Follow this uh, newspaper strip for better or for worse, and just find an old collection at your local library or a used copy if you have to. It's brilliant, groundbreaking work. No one had done anything quite like this before. She was a Canadian who just, as her family was growing up, uh, she was at home, she was the cartoonist, her husband was a dentist, and she just did a cartoony version of their lives as a comic strip, not necessarily with a punchline, and just, um, just oh god, it's such a brilliant comic. It is, and that's why I was kind of, when I saw your, you write that down, I'm like, Lynn Johnson, and I thought about it for a second, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because, you know, when I... My, my first real exposure to comics was probably like the newspaper comics, right? Um, you know, Garfield, for better or for worse, Peanuts and all that stuff. And when I was a kid, I didn't really understand, like, you know, I'm like, I like Garfield because, you know, yeah. he's a fat cat, he hates Mondays. It's, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's simple, simple stuff. Um, but like, better for worse, it was some, I, I never disliked it, but I was just like, okay, this is one of the many comics in there. But as I got older, I'm like, she was really doing this kind of like long form, you know, decades spanning story with the same characters that was really something special. I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say that she is, li I think she is, Lynn Johnson is the natural heir to a lot of the stuff that Will Eisner did later in his career, where he was doing uh, real life, his heightened real life stories based on events he actually saw around him, like living in a retirement home in Florida or something mm -hmm. like that. And he did a story about that, uh, recalling what it was like being a 1940s kid growing up, or a 1930s kid growing up and then becoming an adult just as World War II broke out. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see how that's, there's that storytelling thread that goes from Will Eisner to Lynn Johnson's work, then to Raina Telkemeyer's. Hmm. And if I, you gave me a limit of four, but if I was going to... Sure, go ahead. Yeah. I, you, you could add more. Yeah, yeah but if you, I, want, yeah, if you want to go Will Eisner, uh, Lynn Johnson to Raina Telkemeyer and look for the continuity threads of what they're focusing on, the stories they're telling, it kind of tells the story of literary comics in America. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, even though she's Canadian. She's Canadian, but that's yeah. all right. We'll, we'll, we'll allow it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about some of your other work. I know you've got a big project that you've been working on for a couple of years now, right? Uh, and that's May. Oh, yeah. May, uh, so I, I, as we said in the beginning, um, this is a fantasy series. Um, it's about a young woman. Her sister goes missing for eight years. She comes back and brings this whole sort of world of magic and monsters with her when she does. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about, like, kind of how that story uh comes to be, but what was your inspiration for uh, for doing this? Because this is a, I wouldn't say, is this your first creator-owned work, or is this? Uh, my second, but the second. first one I'm writing. Okay, the first one you're writing. Okay. So what was your inspiration here? Um, well, I'm going to say, just emotionally, the inspiration was, um, it's it's the way we overlook the beauty, the, the wonders and the beauty in our own life. We're like, mm -hmm. we're living in this age of wonders where the present is always this miracle sci-fi setting compared to where life was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and May doesn't appreciate kind of the wonders and the beauty of the world she lives in. Uh, Abby has been living in a f essentially for what is for us a sci-fi fantasy world for eight years, and she's just sick of it. Mm -hmm. And it's one they get to see each other's lives that they begin to appreciate how amazing each one is. That is a really interesting concept, like the idea that you could be in this this world that you know everything you see is just mind-boggling, but after a while, you're like yeah, I've seen it all now. Yeah. Right. And that, that is stun that is stunning because you you're absolutely right. Like when you look at like the technology, like right now I am recording all of this onto a small glass box and I've got another small glass box over here that I can access all the world's information on. And this is all normal. In fact, I'm not excited that this exists. I get mad when it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And uh, I'm going to say other than uh, 
I mean, yeah, our smartphones are essentially our Jack Kirby fourth world 1970s mother boxes. Right. These genius computers. Uh, and I mean, the only problems with our smartphones compared to that is that we can't summon a teleportation tube, a boom tube, and we and when you talk to Give it... Give Google time. Yeah. And, and when you talk to it, you find out that it's actually a very well-spoken idiot, yeah. which <laughs> mother boxes weren't inside the comics. But other than that, these things are mother boxes from 1970s sci-fi comics by Jack Kirby. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I always wonder, like, if, if he was still around with, and with us today, like, what would he be thinking? Like, yeah, I, I came up with all this, like, 50 years ago. Keep up, right? Like, oh, man. Yeah, he's... <laughs> there's this thing where, like, uh, yeah, you have these uh, influential creators from, yeah, when we were kids or when I was kids. Yeah. Where you... So much stuff got ripped off from them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, 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 they just, it's, I, I'm glad that like people like Jack Kirby got appreciation from all the people who were fans of him before he passed away. Right. Uh, and he passed away a few years after I got into the industry. I never mm -hmm. got to meet him. Um, and then there's other people like, I'm just going to throw out a totally random name here. Uh, when I was a kid, I was into uh, tabletop role-playing games. Mm -hmm. uh, there were two, one called... Uh, Bureau 13 slash uh, Stalking the Night Fantastic, which was about um, government agents tracking down uh, episodic weird monsters popping up around the United States countryside, mm -hmm. um, which later became X-Files. Ah, yeah. I, mean, I, I can't prove it, but I strongly suspect the TV shows just swiped that game setting. And then he created another one called um, Fringeworthy, mm -hmm. in which uh, in the Arctic... Uh, the governments of the world discover an ancient alien portal, which is uh, a ramp with a disc, spinning disc floating above it. Mm -hmm. And if you go through the disc, you can travel to other planets along this pathway, mm -hmm. which obviously then became Stargate when right. that got swiped. And then, yeah, and then of course we had multiple versions of Stargate too. Yeah. So, and this James Tachalka guy never got any money or any glory for any of this. I mean, and I think he's still alive today, but I mean. I'm glad that didn't happen to Jack Kirby. Yeah. Well, it, it almost happened to Jack Kirby, but yeah. Well, if James Chalka is out there, and, and, and hopefully someone will pass this along. You did good, buddy. Yeah, and I, I, I hope the creators of Stargate and uh, yeah, X-Files at, at some point gave you some thanks, but I suspect they didn't. No, probably not. Um, all right, so let's talk some more about May. Um, so you talked about this idea, like, you know, um, kind of being sort of, you know, you have two people who are coming from, you know, they're, they're related, but they're coming from effectively different worlds, and each one's kind of um, bored with their own surroundings, and then seeing that uh, is, is really important in terms of, like, you know, seeing what you have and being happy for it. Um, but beyond that, like, what kind of things, if somebody picks this book up, um, what can they expect to see? Uh, let me see. It's, uh, man, it's, uh, oh, sorry, I'm just like, uh, no, it's all right. Like, cause, cause we got some, we got some images. I mean, of course, none of this plays well in audio, but we do have some images of the, uh, the comic behind us, and you're seeing some fantastic creatures and some really kind of amazing, like, futuristic cities and that kind of thing. Um, is this, uh, would you call this an action book? Is this a comedy book? Uh, it's mainly, uh, it's mainly a sci fi drama. Okay. Or, um, it's about a world, they go to another world where, uh, mad science technology actually works mm -hmm. and there's a lot of crazy uh, like uh, it, I took a lot of my favorite old science fiction like I mean just uh, when I say old I mean Frankenstein right. like early 1800s mm -hmm. uh, where that works and then what happens if the mad scientist kept on going to run with that mm -hmm. um, uh, trying to figure out like how would the mad science of like uh, if you're able to use a ray gun how would that work it's mm -hmm. like that um, and just uh, and then they 
the mad scientists have formed societies, and one faction have created this nobility based on their mad science, and another for, have formed a science council where they all work together and stuff like that, but they happen to focus on the Frankenstein technology, and they've pushed it so far they have um, 100 story tall, six legged uh, war beasts walking around and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, but May and Abby are not. Their focus is not as much as May is amazed by being able to check out all, seeing all these uh, wonders that her sister has just gotten totally blasé about. Mm -hmm. uh, their main thing is that they're just trying to figure out what happened to their dad and who grabbed him and where he disappeared to. Okay. Because a uh, little bit after the monsters appear inside of Indiana, uh, their uh, family, the family home is attacked and their dad disappears, mm. and they need to find out who grabbed their dad. Okay, so you got, and so um, the first volume is out. Yeah. Okay. And I, I know the second one uh, is coming or? Oh, uh, second volume. Oh, second volume is now out. Oh, it is out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that ties up most of the plot threads started off inside of volume one and sets okay. up some new adventures. But um, yeah, I'm going to also mention the other thing is it's about two sisters who've had, who want to be close to each other, but mm -hmm. they've had such different experiences and have such different ways of looking at the world. It's this constant fight of trying to force the other one to be the sister they want uh, the other sister to be right now. That's interesting. You bring that up. So um, I'm gonna. Uh, I, I I posted some uh, requests for questions out there on social media, and uh, one of them came from a friend of mine, friend of the show, former guest uh, out in Colorado, Jay Richard Stevens. He's another professor who studies comics and superheroes. And I asked him specifically, like you know, like what would you want to ask Gene Ha? He said, I want to ask you about um, you know making this story about two sisters, right? And why did you think, like, you know, from, you know, because this could have, uh, you know, a lot of times these stories are like, oh, this brother and his brother or something like that. Why was it important to do this about two women? And why was it important to tell the story this way in a traditionally male-dominated medium? Uh, there's a few things that happened. Uh, I'm going to say that my initial inspiration for doing a story about two sisters came from Kyle Baker's um, Why I Hate Saturn, which is a real, a realistic uh, real-life drama comic. Um, but it has elements of sci-fi in that one sister claims that she's been off on Saturn. She's the queen of the leather Saturn girls. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, honestly, I mean, my book, like a lot of books, is fan fiction of the books we grew up with. Right. Uh, and I've told this to Kyle Baker, and he's cool with it. <laughs> but um, I, I began playing with the idea in my little fan fiction-y head. I was a working professional, but it's still fan fiction. What if the story was true and one of the sisters actually had to go to, an, uh, to outer space? And at some point, when I began doing these doodles, just playing around with my fan fiction version of his story... Uh, the spacesuit turned into a kind of like a, a prince or um, a, a, like a Revolutionary War era rock and roll outfit. Oh. And at that point, I realized it was not the same story uh, that I'd been playing with before. And that's how it finally became the book we know now. Okay, very interesting. Um, so the other thing I, I want to ask, too, about this is uh, you did this first volume through Kickstarter. Yeah. Right? And uh, there have been a lot of comics artists, writers, creators who have gone to this crowdfunding thing. For those of you who are not familiar with Kickstarter, basically, um, you put out a project and you say, this is what I need to make this project happen. You offer incentives and people will essentially not, donate's not the right word, but they will essentially pledge a certain amount of money. If this, if this uh, reaches a certain goal, you can now have that money to make the project. So yeah. this has been a way to kind of, uh, and sort of been held up as a way to kind of like go around traditional publishing models. So um, first off, like when did you decide this was uh, a, a book you wanted to go to Kickstarter for? Uh, pretty early on. Um, I knew I didn't want to necessarily conform to how, uh, the publishing companies I'd worked with before, which tended to be focused on the comic shop market uh, and superhero books, mm -hmm. would want to shape the story. Right. 
uh, and I wanted to kind of make my mark on it to make sure it's clearly creator-owned. I also want to ask, um, is anybody else in the uh, is anybody in the audience actually, say, either a comic book creator or someone who'd be interested in starting a project like a novel or anything on Kickstarter? Okay, just just out of curiosity. Okay, okay. okay. But um, yeah, uh, so it just seemed a really way to kind of get out exactly the book the way I wanted to get it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so when you put this out here, now of course you have to uh, make a case for it, right? So right. how did you decide to approach this when you, uh, like, what did you decide? Okay, I need to have these elements, I need to, um, what, I need to kind of think about this is the audience I'm targeting. What was that process like? Uh, I mean, part of it was, I knew the story I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a lot of it came down to um, trying to figure out how that coincided with the people who buy uh, comic books. At mm -hmm. the time, how people bought comic books on Kickstarter. Right. So how long are the comic books? How much of the story can I tell inside of one volume of that size? Um, and it turned out to be like the first two oversized issues of the later May series. It got reprinted that way by uh, at Dark Horse, now Lionforge. Mm -hmm. um, and just, uh, just uh, trying to come out with a great product and stuff like that. And also, I have a lot of friends who've done comic book Kickstarters and okay. just asked them to advise them. Did I say axing? Asking them with advice. I have not asked any it. of my friends at all, ever. I've never asked a friend. Um, right. Yeah, and just... <laughs> at least in a way we can track. <laughs> I have a friend who axed a stranger, but that's a long story. Anyway. I, almost, I, I, I hate to move on from that. But <laughs> like, maybe that's not, not your story to tell. I don't know. But. It's, it's, it was a mess. Okay. Um, all right. Boy, that sounds wrong. It does, doesn't it? Like, there's just nothing about this like, seems to close that thread, right? <laughs> College, a friend of mine got into a fight uh, in a parking lot. In his car, he had an axe, and then he threatened the other guy with the axe. Oh, okay. To kind of get him to back off. Gotcha. And that and then, would work. If somebody yeah. starts waving an axe, be like, you know what, man? You do you. I'm good. And then I heard about it on the radio. And then when they said the name of the suspect at the end of the radio news article thing, it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> My friend's an axe murderer? No, no one got murdered. But I was like, <laughs> an freak axe out for threatener? A yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're friends with an axe threatener, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, that was, that was for a fan of 90s Mike Myers movies. And I don't know if anybody got. Anyway. Um, all right. Uh, but, oh, let me just say this really quickly. Yeah. Uh, for anyone out there who is listening, who's thinking about launching a uh, comic book on Kickstarter, yeah. uh, when I started, when I did this, uh, Kickstarter was hip and new enough so that do, releasing a comic book on Kickstarter was almost its own publicity campaign. Mm -hmm. And now nobody cares. You need to have, if you want to launch something through Kickstarter, you have to have your audience before you start. So uh, if you wanted to start a project like that, if you can figure out a way to survive and get out the art without starving to death, do it as a webcomic, build up your audience, and once you have enough audience that some of them will want a print copy, then you can do a Kickstarter. But if you start off as a Kickstarter now without an audience, it's not going to go anywhere. Interesting. So, okay, that, and that is one of the challenges with Kickstarter, right, is that you almost kind of have the deck stacked in your favor if you already people who know, you, uh, know who you are. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so... Want to ask, so about uh, about May, like the other thing I'm kind of interested in is, of course, you've done two volumes now. Um, what is your long-term vision? Whether uh, it's doing more stories in this world, or uh, what what else would you like to see May become in the future? Oh man, um, man, it's just I would love to tell more story. Yeah, more stories in this world. Okay. Uh, the second volume, uh, the second volume in my head all along is the storyline I had plotted out essentially for the first contained story. I would almost call it like a novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, with a little bit of a cliffhanger ending, but not, but most of the plot threads tied up, mm -hmm. so that they form one unit. And then there's a, th I have the third volume plotted out and ready to go. As far as me 
writing it and drawing it, but the plot is nailed down now. Okay. And I want to do that after I get done with two small projects. Well, one very small project for Marvel I need to get done, and neither have been announced yet, and then a larger project for DC, which has not been announced yet. Okay. So and they're probably not going to get announced now either. So uh, it's been announced that I it's been announced that it's I revealed that I'm working for these guys before in a previous interview, and I can say that uh, especially on the the DC project, it's a very well known writer who I really want to work with, who's been given almost total carte blanche on what they're going to write, and even me saying this right now is probably giving away clues if you're really clever. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm not that clever. Oh. So your secret's safe with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting. Uh, and uh, it's... It's going to be... Anyway, I, I can't say more. That's all right. That's all right. So just keep you your eye out for something DC-related yeah. in the nearish future. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I'll certainly be very interested to check that out. So um beyond oh, oh sorry um, go ahead. and then i want to go back to may as soon as yes, get please that done. do so yes okay yeah um all right so you got a lot you got a lot on your plate um and so you obviously this project you're working on you're really excited about may you're really excited about is there any other just like long-term bucket list things that you're like when i'm like when i you know hit that point where i'm kind of ready to call it a career i want to look back and say this is a thing i'm really glad i did or something that you like always want to do like a pie in the sky kind of thing oh man i uh so uh so I started off, like I said, a kid in South Bend, Indiana, growing up, reading comic books at his public library. And then after uh, direct market comic shops opened up, buying those, reading Alan Moore. I got to work with Alan Moore. Um, just there's wanting to work on superhero books. I got to work on superhero books. Uh, wanting to write and draw my own books someday, maybe. And I'm doing that now. So, yeah, it's just uh, I've had a pretty amazing career. Uh, there are writers who uh, were much younger than me, who I'm getting, I've become fans, I'm getting to work with them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's not a lot of things where it's like pie in the sky I want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have, now that I understand how non-comic uh, shop, non-DC, non-Marvel uh, publishers like, say, First Second or Scholastic work and stuff like that, I have ideas for how I would structure a story and what story I'd want to tell outside of May mm -hmm. for stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, just exploring a few more stories. But doing May, I'm going to say, is... I will do it for as long as I get the chance to do it. I mean, just, I love telling stories about these two characters in this world. And it's flexible enough so that there's a lot of different stories I can tell. Okay. Um, so, last thing, I want to give you a chance, if there's anything you want to plug, like where can people find your work? Oh, uh, you can find me at uh, genehaw.com. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of spelling my name to mostly uh, help departments at software companies, right. uh, I've learned the military alphabet for my name, so it's Golf Echo. Uh, November Echo, HotelAlpha.com. Okay. Uh, let me see. Um, yeah, that's the best way. And once you get there, there's a links page where you can find things like uh, my Twitter, my Instagram, things like that. Okay. And uh, yeah, and of course, you can just go to the uh, website for this podcast, I'm sure, and they will have good links there too. Yes, so, I will make sure there are notes in the show notes uh, letting people know where to go find your stuff. And I'll make sure that I email or somehow otherwise or another get a copy of my rejection letter from Marvel yes. to him so he can post that there too. Yeah, I will do that as well. I'll make sure we have a link to that. All right, so uh, we're going to go ahead and open up for questions here in a second. But Gene, thank you so much uh, oh. and uh, really appreciate you being on Serious Fun. It's been fun. All right. Uh, it's been serious fun. It's been serious fun. Serious fun. Okay. Uh, does anybody have any questions for Gene? Anything at all? <laughs> and you know that thing about no dumb questions? That's especially true on podcasts. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, there's no dumb questions on the podcast, just dumb statements made by the host, which yeah. is me. The dumber, so, the funner. Yeah. Uh, the more serious funner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, please, by all means, come on up. Oh. Um, I've always been a fan of uh, back in the 90s, the Marvel DC, what was it? Algorithm comics for the combined characters. Uh -huh. Oh, if right. If you could combine a Marvel and DC character, who would you combine and what, what would you call them? Oh, man. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, I, I have a friend who does a different podcast uh, who asked this question. I can't remember what my answer was because he came up with a really clever one, and now I can't remember. Um, ooh, okay, wait a minute. Um, I would, okay, I would create the character May Goodness. So I would combine Aunt May and Granny Goodness and make this terrifying, benign character. But I would take the Silver Surfer version of Aunt May, where she was the Herald of Galactus, combine her with uh, Granny Goodness from uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World, and make this cosmic evil character who also likes baking cookies. I love this idea. I would buy 14, however long this series wants to run, I would happily buy every single issue. Yeah. I think the one thing that we have gotten away from in the contemporary Marvel Universe, Aunt May does not have nearly enough omnipotent power. Yeah. Oh, it'd be great. And uh, it'd be spelled capital M, lowercase a, uppercase Y, so it almost like my goodness. And I'd have to force the letter to always make that a lowercase a in the middle. Oh, I love it so much. Um, and of course, when, when you put her in the movies, it's gonna the actress will just get, uh, get progressively younger with each reboot. So eventually, it's <laughs> gonna have like a seven-year-old girl going around, and this, you know, yeah. Uh, that is one of the weird things about Spider-Man is that they just keep making him and Aunt May younger every single time. Oh, uh, in the comic books, they I think they turned Amanda Waller skinny for a while. They did, which is like, yeah. The, but she's the only person who's not muscular skinny inside right. the whole DC and universe. And they call her the wall. Like, that's kind of part of her character, right? Yeah. I'm a big Amanda Waller fan, so I haven't, I haven't loved everything they've done with her, but they did at least cast her right in the movies. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, when they did uh, Young, Pretty, Skinny Lobo. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. There's nothing pretty or skinny about Lobo. He's just a big, burly mess of a man. Yeah, now he looks like all of the Legion of Superheroes or any Teen Titan, and it's just yeah. kind of like, they don't, we don't, the Teen Titans are doing good. There's a lot of them. There's even more yeah. Legion peop Legionnaires. So yeah, Lobo should be gross. He shouldn't be young and, and cute. Like yeah, that's, he should be gross. Uh, other questions for Gene. We could just we just could kick back and, and kind of come up with more uh, plots for May Goodness. <laughs> um, Remember, dumb questions are good. Yes, and uh, you know we, we've clearly set we've clearly set the precedent for this. So uh, what, what I'm wondering, that was delightful, man. Yeah, that was that was a good question, man. Because I'm wondering, like you know, like let's say that like the the, the apartment association, right? Like the 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 housing board decides to get in Aunt May's business. Is she like just like boom tubing them out to apocalypse? Oh or, man, I think there's something there. Oh god, yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that you and I should maybe exchange emails and start kicking ideas back and forth because I think it is time for the amalgam universe to come back. I'm completely with you on that and. This is where it starts. Everything comes out of May Goodness. <laughs> yeah, someone littered in May Goodness's front yard inside yes. of Brooklyn. Yeah, her, her flower box has been tampered with, so she's going to punish the squirrels. <laughs> it's going to be great. Well, I know you got a lot of other stuff going on. You got a table you got to get back to. So, again, thank you so much, Gene. It was wonderful talking to you. Oh, it's good and, talking to you, too. Uh, uh, thanks again for being on Serious Fun. Oh, also, I'm going to say uh, the name of her uh, uh, May Goodness's minions are the uh, female Nick Furies. <laughs> they all have eye patches it's going to be great alright thank you again Gene thanks for being on Serious Fun we'll be back with more on the Brown County Library a little bit later on today uh, we'll be back at uh, 1.30 to talk to Martha Wells hi Martha yeah, so, hi Martha so she's, if, if, Martha. You, if you still want to like, you can still bail out you have time
<laughs> She's like, now that I've seen it, I'm, re- I'm reconsidering everything I've ever done. All right. You'll enjoy it. It's serious fun. It's serious fun. That's the Gene Ha promise. <laughs> So again, big thanks to Gene Ha. Check out May. Check out his works at GeneHa.com. And I want to, of course, give a big, big thanks to the folks who made Brown County Library Comic Con possible. Uh, Gillian, Andrea, all the folks over there. They work really hard to put this together, and I'm just always so honored and thrilled to be a part of it. Um, We're going to have a couple more shows coming up from Comic-Con. Next week, we'll have the Nebula and Hugo Award-winning sci-fi author Martha Wells. You're going to want to check that one out. We talk about a lot of really fun stuff. Then the week after that, we're going to talk about representation in superhero media. uh, And uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that when it gets closer. So, again, thanks to all those folks. Thanks again to Gene Ha. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to our pals at Stitcher. Uh, make sure you check out the other podcasts at the Phoenix Studios Network. It's big uh, sort of little special plug here for Cannonball. That's Cannonball with one N. Um, that is the new podcast on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network with Chuck Ryback and Ryan Martin. And they had me on to talk about Super Mario Brothers and why that deserves a place in the video game canon. So uh, that was a really fun one, and uh, you can check that out as well as all the other podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. And thanks, as always, to Kate Farley for kind of shepherding that into existence and uh, making it what it is. So until next time, I'm your host, Brian Carr, and this has been Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.